Good morning, church. Serve looks exciting, doesn't it? And lots of fun. God always meets us during serve, so get, get your kids registered. And if you're going to volunteer as an adult, get your registration in. My wife, Beth, is already registered, for example. She can't wait. She loves it. Another great year coming up. Welcome to Union Chapel today. If you've joined us online and at the 1130 service, welcome to you. We're thrilled that you've joined us. We're very excited about what God is doing. I know that you've heard all kinds of reports that originated out of Asbury University a few weeks ago, and we are excited about that too. I, I want to try to give some perspective today on what God is doing and how we can be more personally involved in that. There are four questions that we continue to ask here at Union Chapel that informs our worldview and our sense of mission in the world. One is, what in the world is God doing? Where is he doing it? Who is yet to be reached? How can we be involved? What's God doing? Where is he doing it? Who's yet to be reached? How can we be involved? Very simple questions, but if you have the answer to those questions, it gives you focus on what to do next and how to do it. So we're excited about what God is doing in our day, and I hope you are as well. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament Gospel of John, John chapter 4. And I want to read the words of Jesus here. These are the red letters, 34 to 42. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, thanks for doing that. The disciples have joined back up with Jesus after he's been talking to the woman at the well, and they're concerned about whether or not he's eaten. And this is his response to them. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, or otherwise have done the hard work. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now may God inspire us today and hear God's words reminding us that the fields are ripe unto harvest. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now I want to start today's message with three trends. We've, I've entitled this message, Let the River Flow. And I want to start with three trends, but before, uh, before I rehearse those, let me just qualify this by saying that this is, please don't take these personally. If you, are, you happen to be in a profession or a volunteer role that influences children, uh, I'm not thinking of anybody here or even anyone within the sound of my voice necessarily on a regular basis. I'm just generalizing about these trends in our larger culture. So please don't take offense or take this personally um, for that reason. Here are three trends that I believe are true in our culture. Woke is making people, in general, miserable. Second, parents and others are getting angry with school boards and other politicians over what they are doing to our children. And what's happening in some places, in some parts of the country, to our children, even the youngest children, is wrong. It's immoral. It's abusive. It's evil. Some of the things. It's horrible. Number three, there is coming and now is a youth backlash against woke culture. They've, 
They've been told there is no absolute truth. No one, no institutions can be trusted. Your race leaves you either victimized or laden with guilt and shame as part of the oppressor class. Your body and biological gender cannot be trusted. All of it resulting in confusion, disorientation, depression, mental illness, suicide rates off the charts. This is not speculative. This is real life. These are the cold, hard facts. This is what's happening. There was a similar backlash in the early 1970s, late 1960s in our own culture. It was called the Jesus Movement or the Jesus Revolution. There is a new movie that's just been released in the last week called Jesus Revolution. And this is an example of the backlash I'm describing. In the 1960s, late and early 70s, if you were old enough to be alive at that time, my wife Beth and I were in our mid-teens at the time. We remember this very well. These were dark days in America. We had riots in the streets, race riots, riots protesting the Vietnam War. Students were actually shot and killed at Kent State University just, just down the road. It was very dramatic times, very painful. Assassinations were occurring. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. lost his life by assassination. Bobby Kennedy. It was very, very difficult. So it's not surprising, listen, it's not surprising that this current move of God began on a university campus at Asbury University a few weeks ago, and I believe it will continue to spread around the world. Now this movement has begun among Generation Z. Generation Z are those people born between 1997 and 2010. The Gen Zers are 10 to 26 years old right now, 10 to 26 much of the activity at Asbury University for those two weeks that the move of God was happening there uh, was restricted to people 25 years and, old and younger. Uh, people who arrived at Wilmore, Kentucky for those two weeks, people from all over the world speculated that 50 to 75,000 people showed up in Wilmore. Wilmore, by the way, is a town of 4,000 people. It has two stoplights. I lived there for four years myself and when I was in grad school at the seminary and um, Wilmore's infrastructure is not equipped to manage. I mean, there's one restaurant. It's a Subway sandwich shop. I mean, that's it. So the boys were overrun, and it was an amazing thing. So Gen Z seems to be preferred now by the work of the Holy Spirit. These are people 12 to 26. Now, the generation right behind the Gen Zers is the Alpha generation, and they were born between 2010 and will continue to be born through 2025. So these kids are now being born, so they're 0 to 13 years old, the, the Alphas. I have prophesied from this pulpit in the past that I believe that the Alpha generation would be the turnaround generation uh, for the United States, that revival would come again to that generation. And I still believe that to be true, but it looks like God is interested in Gen Z as well. And we're thankful for that. Praise God. Let me say it. Let me say it this way. There is a gigantic spiritual undercurrent in America that is going to lead people to God, and especially among the young. Doesn't that sound good? That's just not hopeful. That seems to be happening. It's very exciting. Now, I wanted to talk to you about the confluence of some historical events in the last month. I want to give you some historical perspective. 
On February the 8th, on a Wednesday, Asbury University, about 1,400 students on that campus, have chapel three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. On Wednesday, February the 8th, a typical chapel was conducted there, and a young man from Lexington and Christian ministry was asked to speak at the chapel that morning. I have subsequently gone back and watched that chapel service. Uh, to say that, that the chapel service was unremarkable is an understatement. It's, it was totally unremarkable. To describe that young man's preaching that morning in the chapel as unremarkable is giving him every benefit of the doubt. It was... No. I know from a reliable source that that young man, when he left the chapel that day, texted his wife, and the message was, another bomb, I'm coming home. He knew it wasn't good. There's a still photo that I have seen of the post-chapel room in Hughes Auditorium on the campus of Wilmore, uh, Asbury University in Wilmore, there are 19 students in the room. There's a cluster of students on the floor in a circle on the, on the side of the room. There's a cluster at the, at the foot of the, of the center aisle, again, sitting on the floor in a circle. There's one young man at the altar and a few other students milling about, 19 students at all, and they never left. Text started to go out, and by... Noon that day, there were about 100 students in Hughes Auditorium. Later in the day, 200 students. By evening, all 1,200 seats were completely filled in Hughes Auditorium, and it stayed completely full 24-7 for the next 15 days. It was a spontaneous move of God's Spirit. There were no unique personalities. There was no distinctive style or music, denominational race, creed, gender, none of that. None of that was, was noted. And by the way, when you're in the presence of God, all differences will disappear. Did you know that? This is why heaven, do you think a certain kind of group's going to heaven? Sure, everybody's going, everybody from every group, so there's going to be somebody from every group in heaven. But when you're in heaven, you won't notice. Because in the presence of God, differences disappear. Age, gender, race, all that stuff just goes away. We're, we're, we're all part of God's creative design, and we'll all be in his presence forever. And we won't notice. We won't notice differences. And it, when the Spirit of God is, is, is tangibly present in moments like this, all the differences go away as well. It's fascinating. Now, I know this is of God. I really do. And I'm excited about it. Um, TikTok, by the way, has registered one billion hits on the Asbury Revival. One billion with a B. It's crazy. Hughes Auditorium, by the way, if you haven't gone online to look at this, Hughes Auditorium is right out of 1940. Why they haven't upgraded this room, I have no idea. I guess, you know, it's, it's had moves of God in history, and they, they kind of like it the way it is, I guess. But it's like a, an artifact. It's like a museum when you go in, you know, kind of bent, bent wood seats affixed to the floor with fold-up wooden bottoms. No, no special lighting, 
no nice screen or projector. The carpet in there has got to be 50 years old. It's got to be. I mean, it's horrendous. I don't know. It's got to be intentional. I mean, it's not like they can't, you know, put in some new carpet or something once in a while. All of that to say that there's nothing remarkable about any of it. There's nothing you can point to. I mean, if you're a skeptic and say, well, you know, they, all they did was turn up the, the sound or, you know, pump, <laughs> pump happy gas <laughs> through the air conditioning system or something. None of that. None of that happened. That was February the 8th. On February 24th, a new movie was released. It's called Jesus Revolution. I encourage you to go see it. Beth and I uh, watched it on Thursday this past week. It's the story of the Jesus movement that started among hippies in the late 60s, early 70s that ultimately touched the world. It's the story of Greg Laurie's life uh, and also in association with Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of Calvary Chapel at the time in Costa Mesa, California, and also the influence of a young hippie named Lonnie Frisbee. It's a fascinating story, and it is a very powerful story. And I encourage you to go see it. If you're not from that era, it'll put you in touch with some of the culture of the day. It does a nice job of expressing that. If you're from that era, it will bring back a lot of memories to you. Beth and I watched the movies. I was in tears most of the time, just reminiscing about what God did in our lives in those years. I was converted in 1971. The Jesus Revolution swept across America, and I was caught up in it. Beth came to faith in 1972. And so it has very personal and special meaning to us. But the timing of it, the timing of it, and when you listen to some of the producers, directors, um, the other actors in the movie, and they talked about the delays and, and trying to get the thing launched and COVID and blah, 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 and the timing of it that it's released on February 24th in the middle of this move of God. Very interesting. And then a third item that is a confluence of events, and that is the National Collegiate Day of Prayer. It was conducted on Friday, February 25th. The National Collegiate Day of Prayer is a prayer movement that's a few years old, and the whole target of this prayer, as it's defined, is to claim every college campus in America for Jesus. And so the National Collegiate Day of Prayer Committee designates a physical campus uh, and then a prayer meeting is conducted there on a given date, and it's broadcast via the media to all these campuses. On the home page of this of this prayer meeting, uh, you have the number of college campuses, and it's like a scrolling number, and you can go online and claim a campus for Jesus, and then that number would go off the screen. By by February the 8th, when the Asbury Revival first started, there were about 1,500 campuses yet claimed for Christ for this prayer meeting. But within hours after the, after the move of God at, at Asbury, all of those were taken. One year ago, one year prior to this meeting, the committee for the National Collegiate Day of Prayer gathered to select the physical site from which this prayer meeting would be conducted and broadcast. And the campus that they selected a year ago was Asbury University. Now, let me tell you what that is. That's God showing off. He's just showing off. This is God going, hey, watch this. And it's fascinating, very fascinating. So 
we're very excited about what's initiated there. Now, let me just try to put some perspective on all of it, if I can. First, I want to offer a cautionary tale. For, for people who are older, particularly, and people who are older and religious, people who are older and know Jesus, people who are older and have had an experience with God, you have a, you have a story to tell about the work of God in your life, particularly for people like that, people like me. You've got to be careful not to overreact to something that's a little different than anything you've experienced. Yeah, I want to caution you. There, there's, there's nothing so far that I've noticed about anything happening around these moments that's, that's other than genuine repentance, prayer, worship, submission, surrender to God. It seems to me that these kids are being honest with themselves, honest with each other, and especially honest with God. And the result of that is a sincere reaching out for a touch from God, and that's exactly what's happening. It's very exciting. I believe this is very, very real. I suspected that it was coming. I've already confessed that it's probably coming earlier than I thought it was coming, and I'm thankful for that. So what does the activity of the Holy Spirit at Asbury mean? Well, first, it should create excitement in us. It should cause us to be thankful, and it should cause us pause to recognize the miraculous nature of it. No one designed this, no one planned this, no one programmed this. Apparently, God is breathing this upon a generation of kids. It's very exciting. The largest detractors of a current move of God are those who participated in a prior move of God. Are you listening? We don't like the music style. We don't like something about the dress code or the attitudes or the demeanor of the leadership or somebody's teaching something out of this that we don't necessarily agree with. Relax. Relax. That stuff will all sort out. Um, don't be suspicious. Don't be critical. Just be open. Be thankful. Be an encourager, especially if you're an older person. Now, listen to this statement. Come back to me. When Jesus was on the earth, his greatest opposition came from old religious people. The room gets so quiet every time I have said that. Here's what I know about revival. Revival is birthed in humility and brokenness. So if you're hungry, if you're honest, if you're reaching out in faith, you can expect to receive. Let me just speak for, for Jen and G and the Alphas who are within the sound of my voice. They already feel these things. But for those, those of us who are older, let me say them out loud on their behalf. If you feel empty, if you feel alone, if you feel lost, if you feel depressed... If you feel bound, if you feel suicidal, you're a candidate to be touched by the loving mercy of God, the encouraging, hopeful touch of God. Nicodemus was a guy, he's a Pharisee, and I suspect Nicodemus is in heaven today, whereas I doubt if his compatriots, the other old religious people in his movement, are probably not. But Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he, you know, he wasn't all out there, but at least he approached Jesus. He humbled himself. He felt his need. He sensed his own brokenness. These are the conditions for a touch from God. Nicodemus says to Jesus, I know you're from God because of what you do and what you say. Something special about you. Jesus said, there is something special about me. You must be born again. That's how you get to the kingdom. And Nicodemus heard it. There are two kinds of people now reacting to this move of God. 
uh, people in this general category of people who love God, know Jesus, believe the Bible true and reliable, authoritative for what we believe and how we live, our faith and practice. You might call these evangelicals. There are two camps within the evangelical world right now responding to the Asbury event. One group is called cessationists. That's just a fancy word that means they no longer believe since the first century, since the death of the last apostle of the first century, that God no longer does miracles. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer in play. Uh, these are folks who, who believe that the most important part of the gospel is the doctrine of the gospel, that if you believe the right things, then you understand the faith and your heart is prepared for heaven. And so these are cessationists, and they, they, don't, they don't have big prayer vigils very often. They don't think about a deeper spiritual life. They don't respond to a, a move of God's spirit that's, that looks more subjective and unpredictable and that sort of thing. These are cessationists. I am not a cessationist. In fact, I don't know how you can be one. I don't, I don't know how you miss it. There are no more miracles? Really? Seriously? You believe that? How odd. They're going to get their world blown away when they see Jesus, I can tell you that. There is another group, and these are, these are what I might call continua continuationists. That, I'm a continuationist. <laughs> what I believe is that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. I believe that the same things Jesus was doing then, he's doing now. Jesus is the guy that said to his apostles, greater things will you do if I go away. It's better that I go away because greater things will you do. That's an amazing promise. Another uh, indicator for me is the New Testament record. Throughout the New Testament, you have these letters, these epistles that have been written by the apostle Paul and others. <clears throat> and at the end of these letters, there's a formal closing. You know, grace and peace to you and in our Lord Jesus Christ and, and Paul will say, you know, Sam, Mary, and Larry, God bless you guys. Love you guys, you know, hang in there and see you later. And there's, so there's a sign-off. There's a formal closing. But you get to the book of Acts, which, which is described as the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts ends, the last verses of the book of Acts, has the Apostle Paul renting some apartment somewhere, preaching the gospel and performing miracles. And then it just ends, you know. And signs and wonders were following, point. That's it. Now, there's a reason why there's not a formal closing on the end of the book of Acts. And the answer is very simple. It's because the acts of the Holy Spirit have not stopped. They're still going. The book of Acts is still happening in our world. Glory to God. And so, and so I'm, a, I'm a continuationist. Hear these names, George Whitfield. John Wesley, these are 18th century revivalists. Uh, you hear Jonathan Edwards, the, the, the tip of the spear of the first great awakening in the United States. He's the one who famously wrote the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've already told you that I read that sermon for the first time in the third story of the Asbury Seminary Library many years ago when I was a student there, and I was converted all over again. <laughs> I read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I said, God, I'm just double-checking to make sure I'm okay with you. Wow, very powerful. Jonathan Edwards would preach in a monotone from a manuscript, and he, he, would never, he would never raise his eyes off his text. He would stand there in a dull monotone. This is how he would preach. Blah, 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 like that. 
and, and, and people would fall on the floor and, and, and beg him to stop and, because they were under such conviction. The Spirit of God fell so heavily under his preaching. <laughs> I don't know, it's, you, can't, you, can't, you can't produce this. This is a thing of God. There were pillars in his church holding up the balcony. People would grab the pillars, hang on to them, and beg him to stop preaching because they felt like they were slipping into hell. Great awakening, I guess. Why am I bringing this up? It's because these guys were all very smart, well-learned. John Wesley was as prim and proper as a human being could be. I mean, his top button was always button. This guy, this guy was was just boringly, predictably straight. I mean, this boy didn't deviate. Highly disciplined, high intellectual. He was an Oxford Don. He was fluent in five languages, the original language of Hebrew and Greek of the scriptures. I mean, he was, he, he, you know, he, he wrote 400 and, 470,000 pieces of literature. He kept a daily diary for like 50 years of his life. I mean, he's, he, I mean, he's just all buttoned up. I mean, he's cinched up. Wesley would go out in the open field and preach to hundreds of people, and he'd come back and write in his journal. As I was preaching today, he said, I don't understand what was going on, but some people started crying. Some people started shouting. Some people fell on the ground. He said, I don't understand this, but it's far be it from me to question whether God is working because many people were, were converted. It, it goes on uh, with names like Al, Hal Harrison, Griffin Jones, and Daniel Rollins of the Welsh Revival. <laughs> I, can, I have learned today that I cannot say Welsh Revival without almost getting knocked over. I have no idea what that means. The Welsh Revival happened in 1904 and 1905. Western Europe and swept the globe. My, the point I'm trying to make, if the Holy Spirit would leave me alone, <laughs> I'm trying to preach here. I'm doing my best. The point I'm trying to make is that these guys, these guys were open to a move of God. They were, they, were, they were all very competent, theological, orthodox thinkers. But they were experiencing supernatural miracle revivals simply because they were open to it. This is, this is what I'm encouraging you with. You're not too smart that you don't need a touch from God. You're not too spiritual to not need a touch from God. You're not too much of anything that you don't need a touch from God. So I'm talking to old religious people right now to encourage you in this. Stevie Nanks was on our staff for a handful of years. He's, he's the one who led our first team into Central Asia years ago to blaze a new trail as missionaries. Very, very significant, capable guy. And Steve came into my office one day, and, he, and, and this was in 1995, actually late 1994, on January the 20th, 1994, give you some history, there was a pastor of a small church, a small vineyard church in Toronto, Canada. His name was John and Carol Arnott, husband and wife. 
and they had been praying for a move of God to come in her church. And they asked a guy named Randy White to come and preach. He said, come and preach for four nights and let's pray that God will send revival. Randy Clark said to him, I can only preach for two nights. And he said, why is that? He said, because I only have two sermons. He, he said, well, come and preach your two sermons. So we'll see what happens. And Randy Clark shows up. I mean, he's just a, he's just a lay, layman, basically by trade, not notable in any way. He shows up at this vineyard in Toronto, and the power of God falls on him. And the thing, and the and the the blessed that's Toronto blessing, as someone tagged it months later, attracted people from every continent on earth. Tens of thousands of people traveled to the Toronto airport in Canada to experience this blessing. And Steve Unanks came into my, my office one day and he said, I want you to take me to Toronto. This is months later. I said, I don't want to go to Toronto. You know, I've, I've been to meetings like this. I've, I've, I've been immersed in God's presence this way. I don't want to go. And he kept persisting. He'd come in four or five times. And I said, look, I'm not going, Steve. I was determined not to go until finally one day Steve walked in and he said, and I quote, he said, I'm going to Toronto and I need you to go with me to protect me because you will know if this is a move of God or not. And I said, shoot, now I got to go to Toronto. <laughs> so I got, we got on a plane and we, we literally, we walk into Tor the Vineyard Airport Church in Toronto, Canada on January the 20th, 1995. It is exactly one year to the day. We had no idea. It was exactly one year, the one year anniversary of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that, ch in that church. There were 1,500 people in the room on a Monday night. This is a year later. On a Monday night, 1,500 people. John and I got, gets up and he says, how many people are here tonight and you are not from Canada? And virtually every hand went up. Where are you from? Call out your country. And people start calling out the name. Literally every continent. There were probably 50, 60 countries represented by the people in that room. And for the next three days, Steve Yanks and I experienced the, some of the most powerful activities of the Spirit of God I've ever seen. I could spend the rest of the week telling you stories from those three days. Remarkable experience. So here's all I'm saying. You can be open and cautious and discerning at the same time. You can do that. Open and cautious and discerning. That's how I went to Toronto. I'm not sure about this. I mean, all kinds of amazing behavior. I mean, Toronto, I mean, folks are on the floor and they're laughing and they're crying and they're yelling. I mean, what is happening? What is going on? All the cessationists are going, that's of the devil. Well, they were wrong. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to make it. You can also be cautious and critical and judgmental. And you'll never see revival. Because let me put this statement on the screen. This is the point I'm trying to make in all this. Revival is birthed in the womb of humility and brokenness without which you will never personally receive. Do you hear that? Humility and brokenness. The posture that all of us should assume in a moment like this is to pray that God will make us aware of our need. Lord, I need you. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm desperate. Without you, I can't make it. Please, 
Here's a question for you. I'll put this on the screen too. Would you have felt comfortable with 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? For those of you uh, uncertain about that, 120 men and women, this is 50 days after the ascension of Jesus Christ. They're in a second-story room in Jerusalem, and they're waiting. They've been there for days. They've been there for weeks waiting. Why? Because Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he said, listen, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So 120 men and women are just there. They're praying. It's quiet. They're, they're just believing. But there's no evidence that God's going to do anything. They're just there. They're persisting. And the Bible says at nine o'clock in the morning, suddenly, now nine o'clock, by the way, that's exactly the hour that they crucified Jesus. And now nine, nine o'clock in the morning, not Passover, but now Pentecost 50 days later. Don't you love the precision of that? I love that stuff. Nine o'clock in the morning, suddenly a violent rushing wind fills the house. Hairs getting dishuffled, loose items are flying around the room. I mean, it's forceful wind. You feel a whirling, violent wind. I mean, imagine this room. There's no openings to the outside in this room, but suddenly there's wind, violent, rushing wind. That would get your attention. And then tongues of fire, visibly, tongues of fire starting to rest on people. What if that happened in this room right now? Would that be okay for you? I know what some of you would do. You'd go, you see a tongue of fire resting on the person next to you across the aisle, and you just go, no, I don't think I want one of those. God says, no, everybody gets one. <laughs> they, tongue resting on each one is the phrase. And then they, they start speaking in languages they've never learned. Declaring the mighty deeds of God, the glory of God. They, they, they bounce out of the upper room onto the street. They spill out into the street. People, it's nine o'clock in the morning. People think they're drunk. They're excitable. They're emotional. They're declaring the great things of God. People say they're drunk. Peter said, no, they're not drunk. And so the first question is asked on the day of, of Pentecost, the same question that the news media was asking when they arrived at Hughes Auditorium on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. News media from all over the country asking this question. They said, what is this? What is this? Same question the crowds asked on the day of Pentecost. And Peter stands up and he says, I'll tell you what this is. This is that which was spoken of by Joel the prophet, that in the last days God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And upon all flesh will I pour out my spirit in those days, saith the Lord. And then that led to the second question on the day of Pentecost. The second question that day was from the people, the 4,000 people who heard Peter describing what the heck was going on. And they respond with this question, what must we do? What do we do now? Peter said, repent of your sins, receive Jesus Christ, the one you crucified. God, has, God has, has, has raised from the dead and made both Lord and Christ. Receive Jesus as your Savior, your Messiah. They tore their clothes and repented. 4,000 people came to faith. I promise you that in the, in, the, in the midst of this move of God that's happening right now, not only will people be asking, what is this? But sooner or later, they'll be asking, what must we do? And these are days of opportunity. 
So your initial reaction to Asbury, I think, is an indication of where you are with God. Hang on to that. Thankful, humble, broken before God in the face of America's desperate state. You know, America's in a bad place. You do understand that, don't you? You agree to that. I don't hear anyone saying, no, America's beautiful, it's wonderful, everything's perfect. Everyone knows if everything's broken. That's not hard to get to. That's, that's just obvious. The question is, will the people of God be thankful and humble and broken before God in the face of our desperation? So we should be thankful for this glimmer of hope that God might unify the church and win the lost and put us on a living way for Jesus' sake. So we must not be jealous. Well, it's, it's not happening in my tribe, so it must not be of God. Would you stop that? Well, I, I don't have to go to Asbury or anywhere else, so I don't even have to go to church. I'm as spiritual as anyone else. Okay. Don't receive. Humility and brokenness are the conditions. That's it. Cocky is not one of them. Spiritual pride is not one of them. Heads up. There was a charismatic movement in the 70s and 80s in the United States. It was dubbed the charismatic movement, indicating the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some people described it as the third wave, you know, first and second great awakenings. Then you get a third wave. It was, came on the heels of the Jesus movement. And the Spirit of God was moving in mainline denominational churches. So the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Methodists were, people were experiencing the Holy Spirit, the Roman Catholic Church. And all these, all these mainline churches develop renewal ministries. The renewal ministry in the Methodist church was Aldersgate Renewal Ministry. Aldersgate was just the name of the street that Wesley was converted on years ago. So we tagged it with that. I served on the leadership team with Aldersgate and preached in their conferences for years. Now here's the fascinating thing about that, that activity of the Spirit. The Pentecostals, the classic Pentecostal churches in America, the folks who who uh, were, were stimulated and sprang up from the revival in 1904, 1905. By and large, the Pentecostals completely missed an opportunity to be revived during the charismatic movement in the 70s and 80s. They missed it. Because they figured if it's not happening with us Pentecostals, the Spirit of God can't be authentic in, with the Methodists and the Lutherans, for crying out loud. They don't even know Jesus. We've been blessed here at Union Chapel for decades, and, and the, the flow of God, the blessing of God, fruitfulness has continued to, to happen. We're th so thankful for that. But in our society in general, we've been in a drought spiritually. We've been praying for a few drops from heaven, and so here's my advice. Stop complaining. We're in a drought. Be thankful. The, the, the water's flowing. The river's flowing. Let's get in the river. There's some refreshing coming from the Spirit of God. Let me tell you about Andrew Murray. He was a South African, hear that, South Africa, writer, teacher, Christian pastor. He lived from 1828 to 1917. Uh, Murray considered missions, this was his quote, his quotable quote from his life, missions to be the chief end of the church, the chief end of the church. That was kind of his tagline. Murray had left his church in Cape Town, South Africa for several weeks and upon his return, he found his congregation experiencing revival. 
and people were very emotionally and passionately worshiping God and praying. He got into his church, and Murray misinterpreted what was happening there as emotionalism, and it offended him. And so Murray, Andrew Murray, got in front of his church who were experiencing revival, and he told them all to behave and to go home. Stop acting like this and go home. He sent everybody home, drove them out of his church. They were worshiping God. Andrew Murray's own father was standing out in front of the church and in tears. And after Murray had dismissed everyone from the church, he walked out and met his own father. And his father said to him through his tears, how dare you stop something I've been 30 years praying for? And Andrew Murray finally got the idea and it so broke him that he would not preach after that. He sat in the back of his church for weeks after that, refusing to preach. He was so contrite so filled with contrition, so embarrassed that he had stopped an authentic move of God that he just couldn't bring himself to preach. But after several weeks, the elders in his church literally carried him. They grabbed him by the arms and drug him up to the pulpit. They, they stood him up in the pulpit, and the fire of God fell on him. And he began to preach. And history records five million Africans came to a saving faith in Jesus through the life of Andrew Murray. Glory to God. Glory to God. Back to our passage today, John 4, 35. Jesus said, don't you have a saying in four months and then, then it'll be harvest? He said, oh, listen, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. There are people in our culture right now, well, it's not from my tribe, not from my group, not from my generation, and so this can't be authentic. We're praying for a move of God. God, we know that a move of God is coming. Hello? Jesus said, you know, you have a saying, four months in a harvest. Lots of people have been praying for a move of God, praying for a revival, please. But we've got a preconceived notion about what it's going to look like, where it's going to come from, how it's, going to, how it's going to manifest itself. And if you posture that way, you'll miss the whole thing. Jesus said, you got this saying, four months in the harvest. Well, that's the normal routine, but I say, open your eyes and look around. The fields are ripe unto harvest. Seize the day. Seize the day. There's a mass moral ripening happening right now in America. People have had enough lies told to us from government, perversions perpetrated in our schools and universities, the woke mob in mainstream media and social media intentionally pushing God and particularly the Christian faith from our culture. America is tired of the consequences of this agenda. Suicides, drug addiction, violent crime, mental illness, particularly among our children and youth, weakening the frame and fabric of our society and our world. America is being made miserable by the woke. And this dissatisfaction and disillusionment is producing a great hunger for a touch from God, and it's going to create a big harvest. You watch. And I just say to that, let the river flow. Let the river flow. Come, Lord Jesus. I love Romans 5.20. You know, you have to say it by faith when there's no move of God. But today, we can say, thank God. But where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. Amen. Praise God. And because the emotional brunt of this changing, negative, woke, moral compass has fallen first on the university campuses, 
This is why you see the outbreak on the university campuses across America. The kids have suffered the most damage, and they are the first place now that God has gone to restore sanity and hope. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It will continue to break out among the youth. And so, therefore, let me just speak to the older now. Every parent, every grandparent, every teacher, every professor, every pastor, every minister, every leader must understand the opportunity that is before us. This is a great opportunity. We should pray. Pray for protection against anything or anyone contrary to God's plan. People in worship, people in preaching ministries, we should all start orienting ourselves to what in the world God is saying to us. Let me describe something this way, illustrate it this way. In firefighting, there's a term. There are parts of the country where there's heavy uh, mountainous forestation and forest fires, you know, become very dramatic. California has these on an annual basis. And these heavily forested areas, the firefighters have this great fear, and it has a name. It's called area ignition. Area ignition. It's in a forest fire, the worst thing that can happen. In a spiritual revival, area ignition is the best thing that can happen. Let me explain. Area ignition is when several smaller fires burning independent of one another suddenly merge into a single wall of flame. When that happens in nature, it's called area ignition. This is when people die. This is when a wall of fire, unstoppable, it it engulfs whatever's in front of it. And if there are firefighters in that area, this is when firefighters lose their lives. This is why it strikes fear. Spiritually speaking, though, area ignition is when it goes off the Christian campus, for example, in this case, and onto the secular campus. Now watch this. When it goes into the intellectual centers not accustomed to these activities and students begin to repent in those areas, call on God and have a genuine experience with the Holy Spirit, coming out of lifestyles and giving a testimony to God's transforming grace. The more dramatic the conversion, the more impactful the witness to Christ's transforming power. Kelsey Grammer has played the role of Chuck Smith in the movie Jesus Revolution. Kelsey Grammer, you know, you recognize him from other roles he's played. And Kelsey Grammer doesn't have a particularly Christian background, uh, he has some spirituality in his past that he can describe. But he, he took this role of the pastor Chuck Smith in the middle of this movie. And, of course, this movie has the touch of God on it. And when you hear the people who, who made the movie and, and, and played starring roles in the movie, they will describe life-changing experiences with God's presence just making the movie. I've seen Kelsey Grammer interviewed by some of the, the secular talk shows and, and if, you, if you Google that and just watch him, Kelsey Grammer doesn't have all the Christian, Christian vernacular. He doesn't, he doesn't know all the Christianese. So when, when they ask him a question like, what's this movie about? And he tries to describe what's happened. He uses the best language that he knows. And then in virtually all of the occasions I've seen him when he was interviewed, he just breaks down and starts crying. Kelsey Grammer's got a problem now because he stepped in the river. He stepped in the river. He can't even describe what it is, but he knows something's happened to him. The only reference he has is Jesus. Must be Jesus. 
It's fascinating. Saul of Tarsus is a perfect example of this in the scripture. He was well-connected. This guy, Saul of Tarsus, became the Apostle Paul. He's highly educated. He's, he's politically connected. He's got this religious zeal. And then he has this experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and God knocks him to the ground, blinds him, takes a miracle for him to recover his sight. Well, he, got a, he got a good dose of Jesus in his life. And so now he emerges after a period of time, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what happened in the first century were those ruling authorities in the day could easily dismiss guys like Peter and John. I mean, these guys are just fishermen. They're blue-collar. You know, they're a bunch of rednecks. So you got a bunch of rednecks saying, you know, there's a new religion. This guy, Jesus, you know, he rose from the dead. And it's easy for people to look at him and go, come on, guys. You know, you're unlearned. You didn't go to school. You're a bunch of rednecks. You talk like you're from the woods. And, you know, you've had a, you, you drank too much or something. You're confused. But when the Apostle Paul emerges, now you can't easily dismiss him. He's got status. He could not be ignored. Now, follow this. Perhaps in this move of God, we'll see people who don't look like or act like or come from typical Christian culture but have a genuine experience with Jesus. The world doesn't know what to, know what to do with Kelsey Grammer when he can't talk about Jesus without crying. There's no filter for that. You know, he was a regular guy just the other day. Some, what has happened to him? He's a, you know, he's a competent, intellectual, reliable, entertaining fellow. Why can't he talk about this movie he just made without crying? What's the matter with him? For years, we've seen in America black conservatives in America. That's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? Black conservatives. But more and more of these men and women are emerging in our culture. And they're being treated with horrible bias. Ostracized, called every name in the book, rejected by their own culture, simply because they describe that the scales have fallen from their eyes and they can see a way forward in America apart from leftist progressive ideology. And black conservatives in America right now, God bless them, are gaining more and more traction. And people whom we would least expect become Christians, the same kind of dynamic happens. You have an African-American young man or young woman, you know, deeply thoughtful and articulate and powerful in their messaging, and they, and they talk about the hope they have when you, they practice the right values in America that is such in contrast with the typical culture, and, it, and it, they, they have great force. They have great power. They have great influence in the culture. And I'm just suggesting that when people that you least expect become Christians, you know, some of the, some of the talking heads, some of the philosophers, some of the intellectuals, some of the uh, movie stars and Hollywood personalities and that kind of genre, those kinds of arenas where people have been so vehemently opposed to the Christian message, suddenly come to Jesus, their testimony, I'm just, I'm just predicting the future. When, when, these, when these men and women start telling their stories and figuring out a way to say it with authenticity and passion, conviction, there's no filter. There's, there's no way to dismiss them. 
It's just like the Apostle Paul. It's just like young black conservatives in America. These are voices that have enormous influence. And you're going to see that happening. There's a new breed of Christians coming to America that there's no explanation for, no defense to, no power to resist. Look for it. And don't, and don't be discouraged if they, don't, if they don't get all polished up and look perfect right away. Don't, don't dismiss them if they don't say all the right words all the time. Summary. There are pockets of fire. There are pockets of fire right now. We are one of them. We don't have to go to Asbury because we have connections at Asbury. <laughs> Probably next week or the week after. Next week, we think for sure, maybe the next week, we're going to bring some students from Asbury University here. And just we're, just, we're going we're gonna to prop them up. We're also going to prop up some of our staff and friends who have been to Asbury to experience what happened there and let them tell, just, just tell us what happened to them. Just tell their story and see what happens. They are highly contagious. They have spiritual COVID. Don't wear a mask. We want to get it. So you can receive right here and right now. Because we're saying, let the river flow. We want to be just another brush fire that will eventually connect into area ignition. And a great wall of fire, may it sweep across this country. May it sweep across this nation, O oh God. And may it circle the world. Now I'm glad I'm done, so the Lord will leave me alone. We have the altar rail set up here. So at the closing song, we just want to invite you to come and kneel and pray if you'd like. Remember, humility and brokenness. That's the attitude. We'll have people on either side of the platform. If you'd like personal prayer, someone to agree with you in prayer touch your hands and pray with you. These are folks who have been to Wilmore, by the way, mostly, and they'll be ready to pray for you. So you'd be encouraged to come, will you? Let's stand now as we sing.